0: podcast where myself john and my friend chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice chris welcome back to the podcast sir how are you doing
1: uh i am uh, the air smells a little cleaner although we are getting the wildfire uh smoke from you so
0: <laughs> yeah it's a month-long uh, delay maybe apparently. that's doing something
1: that. to my mind but it's being off for a month uh, i feel very refreshed i have watched a lot of movies i am looking forward to just diving back in so couldn't be doing any better john how about yourself
0: uh, yeah, I'm not doing too bad. I have a, I have a cold brew coffee with me. I have a, a lemon water with me as well. am trying to stay hydrated and, uh, uh, definitely trying not to think about, uh, all the housework that I have to do, uh, especially when I'm <laughs> doing this instead. So, you know,
1: <laughs> same, uh, and we should probably, uh, I should probably note that, uh, as of this, it is the first of July. It is incredibly hot. I do not have an air conditioner in Because the noise is just too much. I do have a fan on. Otherwise, you would just hear water pouring onto the microphone as it drips from my forehead. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to edit some of that out. I do also have a huge flask of lemon water uh, and a Diet Coke. So I, I could not be more hydrated and ready to go for today's episode, which I'm very excited about.
0: The theme for today's episode... Uh, broadly speaking is uh 70s cinema uh and chris this is your theme and the way we the particular way we got to this particular theme uh is mostly around sort of like I would broadly describe it as confused misinterpretations on my part so why don't you why don't you start and then I'll sort of uh sort of respond and we can sort of
1: sure talk about how so, we got to our specific choices <laughs> so yeah confused uh misinterpretation but y- yielding, I think, wonderful results. So um, initially, I had been thinking a lot about um, movies of of the 70s. When we talk about recommendations, I'll talk about uh, a huge series of films that I've been watching while I was away from the podcast, um, almost all of which took place in the 70s. And it just made me think about that at that time... Really, there's a lot of books about this, about how, like, the 70s kind of changed cinema. It was the bridge between what was going on in the 50s and 60s. It heralded kind of the new Hollywood and then how that kind of permeated into what has happened in the 80s. Uh, so what I was particularly thinking about was, you know, in the 80s, we had these – um Huge action heroes, and we had these macho personas. We had Schwarzenegger, and we had Stallone, obviously, but then we also had stuff like Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, Steven Seagal toward the end of the 80s, and then into, into the 90s, and... I started thinking about how in the 70s, when you think about action cinema in the 70s, how uh, the the actors and the people that they were kind of grooming to be those action stars were very different than what was going on in the 80s. So uh, actors like Charles Bronson or, um, strangely enough, William Devane, which we're going to talk about for one of our picks. So I had reached out to you and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of like tough guy you know, personas and kind of like gritty action films. Like the, like it's such a stylistic shift from action films in the seventies into what it became in the eighties. So I had, I had suggested that. And, and, and to your credit before your, your glorious misinterpretation, you were like, well, do you mean like Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood, which absolutely uh fit the bill. But I had pushed back a little bit because everyone knows Dirty Harry and everyone knows, you know, those films. So I was like, let, let's think of something else. Cause the, the movie that I'm going to pick is, um, a very gritty, I don't want to say obscure movie. Um, people know it, uh, it's a huge influence on like Tarantino, for example, but I was like, let's try to dig a little bit deeper. And, and John, that's where you came up with, <laughs> with your first suggestion after Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry.
0: Yeah. So, and I mean, sometimes we like to, you know, re- do the reveal right before we cut away, but I-, I don't think we need to in this case. Cause I want to, I want to ex- stand up for myself here, uh, which is, uh, that, uh, the first movie we'll be talking about, uh, is the taking of Pelham one, two, three. Um, and when I suggested, when I was just trying to get a sense of like calibrate with you, like what is the theme that you're looking for? And I suggested like, are you talking like death wish, dirty, Harry, that kind of stuff. Um, those are the like you said let's dig deeper but for me those like i was like there is not a deep there is not a a a further level down for me to dig like i couldn't tell you anything else um but and so the reason i came up with taking a poem 123 was that i i had i had heard of this movie i i know that um over on the Flophouse movie podcast that it is a movie that is much celebrated over there and i've heard sort of random anecdotes and bits about that movie that without otherwise knowing that it's like it's a someone hijacks a train Um, but other than knowing that it's that and it's like you know supposedly you know gritty and stuff I was like I didn't really know who was in it, or what happened, or what was going on? So it didn't occur to me uh, at the time that uh, the, the the protagonist of Taking of Pelham One Two Three uh, may not actually fit the mold of what you were looking for. And-
1: <laughs> yeah, and to be to be fair, I mean, so yes, we went from Clint Eastwood to Charles Bronson, both completely fit the bill of what I was talking about, to Walter Matthau. Uh, but the thing that I will say is, and, and what I loved is that, uh, first, I just love that your mind went there. Now that I hear the thought process around it, uh, I still love it. So call this 70 cinema, uh, just looking at a pair of films that probably could not have been made or made the same way very specifically with the taking of Pelham one, two, three, because it was remade again. Uh, but certainly not the same way that it was made in the seventies. And I think that speaks volumes to the decade, um, as a time of real uh, experimentation and, uh, and voice. So, with that, John, I don't know if there's anything to add before we kick into our first film.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. <laughs> two three 1974 movie directed by joseph Sargent and starring as we've discussed already walter Matthau, along with uh, robert shaw and hector elizondo um this um, uh, apparently adapted from a book of the same name and it is uh about a (laughs) a group of uh, criminals who hijack a train and i gotta say like there's a lot of, like, there's so many things to love about this movie, uh, as you've already hinted. But m- probably the first thing that stands out to me as we, you know, get into this movie is how much of the beginning of the movie is every single time they run into a new person and have to explain to them that a train is being hijacked. Everyone's first reaction is, how the fuck would you even do that?
1: Yeah. And we should be clear when we say a train is being hijacked, a subway train is being hijacked. This is very much a New York film. <laughs> so hence the incredulity of people like, how the fuck do you hijack a subway train?
0: <laughs> like, and the, and the fact that they just keep repeatedly hitting that plot beat every single time that they have to, you know, reach out to someone new is, it just is, is so delightful. Um, and cause cause again, If like at surface value you just tell me the 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 plot of the movie it's like okay that sounds that sounds fine but then everyone's like no 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 there's like that doesn't make any sense why would you ever do that um but the the way in which this um I, i think that what my biggest love about this movie is is how it is like Walter Matthau is, is ostensibly our protagonist, but this is much like, but he's not actually in as much of this movie as you would expect, given that, you know, for, for being a main character, because so much of this movie is about sort of the sprawling network of people that are involved in, uh, sort of the events surrounding the hijacking train. There's the, there's of course the criminals on the train itself. There's the, um, uh, there's the people who are sort of running the subway train, uh, including Walter Matthau and uh, Jerry Stiller and all the people over there. There's the, there's the cops running around various places. There's the, there's stuff involving like the the mayor gets involved uh, at, at, at different points. I kind of, there there's a way in this sort of like procedural, like um, way in which all of the different parts of the the city sort of, you know, for better or worse and oftentimes worse, they still like come together to, you know, uh, I I just like this, the sort of sprawling scope of, we're going to get the whole city involved in this, uh, in this whole thing. Um, I also wanted to ask, uh, since this is a New York ass movie, Chris, uh, how, how does the New Yorkness of this movie feel to you both sort of as a relic of its time, but also like now, like, like what does, what does that do for you?
1: Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up about the film is this is uh, done in 1974. It nails New York City in the 70s, not just 1974. uh, But I remember, you know, going to New York City as a young kid in the late 70s. And yeah, this is New York City. This is what New York City used to be like. Uh, It was not a wonderful, glorious, beautiful, clean, kind of sterilized place. It's not really that now, even though People complain that it is, but um, there was a level of you could say dirt and, and like grit, uh, but there was a tangibility to the city that I think this film captures really, really well. Um, and and to your point, uh, if you just say that this is about a couple of a bunch of criminals that have a scheme to hijack a subway car uh, and ransom the hostages, yeah, that's pretty interesting. But I love that so much of this film. Um, it's not an action film. It's very much a thriller, but it's, it goes so much into the mechanics of how that situation impacts the rest of the city. Um, one of my favorite parts of the film, besides what you already mentioned, just how the subway, the MTA, the transit authority are just like, how the hell did this happen? They literally spend two, there's like 15, 20 minutes where they're just, they're just yelling because they don't know what's going on. They haven't figured out that, that it's been hijacked. So all they know is that a train stopped and it's backing up all the other trains and it's like rush hour and the commuters are freaking out. Um, but then at the point where the hilariously inept mayor comes into play, he's got a cold and he doesn't want to deal with anything. He literally wants to just put his head under the covers. Um, they're talking about the ransom. Do they want to pay the ransom? And, It comes up that it's also elections, so he's got to play this very carefully. And they actually talk about it. I've never seen a thriller talk about this. Like, oh, well, okay, let's get the money. We're going to have to go to a bank (laughs) and, like, take out a loan for this money. You never see a thriller. That, like, like, it's always like, okay, we've got duffel bags filled with millions of dollars that the city provided, but you never figure out how they get that money. And I love that this movie takes a couple of minutes to just go through the mechanics of, well, which banks are favorable to us right now that we'll be able to take this money out and be able to pay this off. So, um, in answer to your question, very, very authentic to my admittedly limited experience, because I was born in 73. So, you know, I'm five, six years old when I was going there in the seventies. Um, very authentic experience though. And, and just the, the novelty of not focusing so much on the cat and mouse of the good guy versus the bad guys, but taking into account the entire system. Uh, there's a lovely sequence and, uh, Huge credit to director Joseph Sargent, who both of us looked at, and, and with maybe one <laughs> strange exception, we're not that familiar with his filmography, but he does a great job using the location. For the film, there's a great sequence where um, there's a timer to get the money to the criminals, and so these cops are in a car and they're rushing through the horrible traffic of Manhattan to get to where they gotta go, uh, and and the, and the the cop car crashes, and now they gotta figure out how to get the money there. Like that's where the tension and the intensity plays um, in these little moments throughout the film, and it just makes it it, it just makes it a wonderful um, wonderful little time capsule. Uh, of a uh, time uh, and period in uh, New York history,
0: across the board in in Pelham is that pretty much every like, except for maybe Cherry Stiller, who's like pretty like level-headed which is weird for jerry stiller like really weird to see jerry
1: stiller not screaming at the top of his lungs
0: yeah like (laughs) I, i mean insert any number of seinfeld uh jokes here but like with the exception of him and he's kind of a side he's sort of like the sidekick in this movie but like everyone else like from the mayor down to walter Matthau, is like an unrepentant piece of shit uh and, and like, and, and no one seems that bothered by it. Like it's like you, you're never, you're always, these are always your heroes and the people who are trying to stop the bad thing from happening. But the amount of mm-hmm. like, the amount of times I was like, Oh, you, you said those words, huh? Okay, great. Cool.
1: <laughs> even, um, and, 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 I don't know if you said this as well, but like even Walter Matthau is a jackass. And oh
0: a jerk, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I mean, the, but
1: yeah. before it happens, he's escorting, um, Japanese representatives from, from from the Japan transit system, he's kind of walking them through, assumes that they don't speak English, so is being just incredibly rude and patronizing and condescending and uh, until he finds out that they do all speak English and they've understood everything he said. So it, 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 it's classic Walter Matthau, just like a, a gruff, grumbly old guy who doesn't give a shit. Um, but they they take pains to make him out to be a complete and utter jackass before he has to now be um, the only person besides Jerry Stiller in the MTA and in the subway place that really cares about trying to save these hostages.
0: Yeah. And uh, and for like I mean, and on the flip side, like I, I really responded to Robert Shaw as the as the head bad guy, even though like even without necessarily like a clear sense of like why he was doing any of this or like the, 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 the characterization, I felt a little bit thin in spots, but he's just so good that you kind of don't care. You're just like, well, right, wh- whatever, whatever feels, uh, you know, he's, he's compelling enough to basically carry the material on his own. Um, well, that's
1: another, I, I think that's another kind of really neat indicator of '70s cinema is like you have, you have character actors up the wazoo in this film. the 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 bank robbers are a who's who of like. You have Robert Shaw, who most people will know from Jaws, obviously, but um, Hector Elizondo, completely playing against type as you would typically think of him, as kind of the gung ho crazy the wild person kind. of the group, right? And then you have um, Martin Bassam, uh, um I can't remember who the other guy is. There's a a, a much larger guy uh, in the group as well. But I mean, but just those three together, um, you're going to get, even if their characters are sketched thinly, the performances and the nuances of their performances are so good that you you don't necessarily need, and I agree with you a hundred percent, the motive for what they're doing makes no sense. And there has to be an easier way to get. Like, I think they only asked for like a million or two million dollars. <laughs> there has to be an easier way than hijacking a subway train.
0: <laughs> You'd think so. Um, yeah, I, especially Hector Elizondo, I want to shout out because I mostly remember him as being on, I think, was it, was it Chicago Hope? Was that the medical show he was on?
1: Um, I think so. But where I know him the most is, um, from Pretty Wood. Uh, fair enough. As the concierge of the hotel who works with, uh, Julia Roberts.
0: That, but 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 for him to play the sort of like the the dangerous uh chaos the the agent, the agent of chaos who sort of like ends up collapsing the whole plan uh,
1: yeah, the psychotic sex crazed weirdo of the thieves
0: <laughs> I remember reading up on some of the reaction to some of this and and how people would use this movie as like an example of like, oh look how terrible new york uh city is, you know, look how badly all of this works and how terrible these people are or whatever. But the way that the, the tone that this movie sets for me, there's ways in which this almost becomes like a comedy in, in parts. Like it's like, there's real danger for sure. But like, there are a lot of times in this movie where I'm basically laughing my ass off at just sort of look at this asshole, be the hero of this movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, I, I think this was a time where tone and and genre could kind of really, I mean, that was one of the great things about the 70s. You can mix a bunch of stuff together. There are definitely both outright and more subtle comedic moments throughout um, throughout the film. Uh, and, and also just in terms about kind of reading the critical reaction and, and stuff like this. This was very well received when it came out in the 70s. But one of the biggest things as far as kind of a lasting impression that we that we didn't talk about um and this actually is a tie between two of our films as well both of the films we're talking about today were hugely influential to um quentin tarantino um this one way more um obviously because we didn't even talk about the names of the criminals
0: yeah that was a real (laughs) surprise for me when i started to hear when i started to hear the mr blue mr green mr gray i was like oh holy shit This is this is Reservoir Dogs. This is the movie where he lifted that. Yeah. Well, and yeah, obviously that's how time works, but also like, uh, uh, I didn't realize that that was a like, like clear, obvious, unambiguous. No, I'm just, uh, calling my shot and referencing, uh, uh, referencing this movie. Good, good for, good
1: for Tarantino. Uh, I want to talk about the ending for a second because it's one of the other things that the film is known for. Uh, It has a classic kind of ending that I don't think you're going to see anymore in modern movies. Um, and it is the great gazoon type scene. <laughs> so how did that play for you, John? Cause it could also come across as just kind of, you know, sad trombone wah, 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 kind of thing. But it, for me, it really plays well considering how it feeds you that clue throughout the rest of the film.
0: It, it, it's funny for how sudden it is because it actually comes at a point in the movie where I would have thought the movie would have ended 10 minutes beforehand. Cause you was, cause again, without knowing anything about the movie, just that it's about a a, a train hijacking. I would assume that it would be about, I I would assume that once they foil the subway hijacking, that that would be the end of the movie. You'd get like maybe a scene of, uh, um, you maybe get one scene of, you know, denouement or whatever, and then you'd be done. Um, but because the way that they built the, the way that the story, the way that the sort of so thing, everything falls apart is that, uh, one of the crooks actually gets away. And, and so they, even though we've, you know, even though the people on the train are safe and, you know, orders restored and all that stuff, uh, apparently Walter Matthau is invested enough that he's not going to stop until he finds the one who, uh, the one person who got away. And so we now go on this sort of extra, uh, extra mission to go and try and investigate, um, try and track down where this person may have ended up. And, uh, and so when they, you know, they go through stuff with, with Jerry Stiller and they're trying to find, uh, people who used to work for the the subway, uh, and fired under, you know, bad circumstances or whatever. And the ending you're talking about is when they talk, when they end up at the right place, they don't know that they're at the right place. They're just asking the guy some questions. And then, and he's got like, <laughs> he's got money stuffed in the oven and he, and they, which they almost set on fire uh, by accident, <laughs> which is great. Um, and like, again, we are well past the point where I thought the movie would have already been over. And they were doing this whole like scene where they're asking him police type questions and nothing's really adding up in a way that makes any sort of sense So they're like, well, you're not especially forthcoming, but like, we will I guess we'll come back or just sort of like, they're they're not exactly happy with the outcome of the conversation, but they decide to leave. And then right as they're about to close the door, um, the, the guy, uh, sneezes, Mr. Green. Yeah. Mr. Case. Green. Yeah. He, he, he sneezes and this is a like, and throughout the whole movie, uh, Mr. Green has had a cold and so he sneezes and, uh, because they're on the radio talking to Walter Matthau a whole bunch of times, um, this is something that has, it's never been commented on, but it's something that he's heard the whole time. And so the last moment of the movie is, uh, Mr. Green sneezes the door, which has been closing, uh, uh which Walter Martha has been closing. He opens it up again and just sort of looks inside. You just see a close up of his face looking <laughs> With inside, the greatest like, oh. look. <laughs> and then, and then like fade to black, cut the, like cut to credits. Like it is it is you want to know how this played for me? It played incredibly well. It was like, I fucking love that ending so much.
1: It, it, is great. <laughs> it is great. Uh, so I, I don't know that there's a lot more to this. This is also the film that made me understand how the third rail works. You always hear about don't touch the third rail. Um, and, uh, spoiler, um, Robert Shaw dies by, he basically commit suicide. Yeah, he suicide uh, by, by third rail. purposely touching the third rail uh, and understanding how current and stuff works. So this is where I learned how you, just, you never touch the third rail.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that I understand how it works, but it's certainly a good a demonstration of why you shouldn't do it.
1: <laughs> well, look, if you got to touch the third rail, please don't make sure you're touching one of the other rails so that the circuit can be completed in course through your body and basically is is the lesson that I learned from that. My,
0: my grade um, 10, uh, my grade 10 electronics teacher would probably be shamed of me if he heard this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also, you know, to bring it back to the beginning for a second and to just focus on a little bit more of the mechanics of the film too, the way that Sergeant puts together, um, the whole beginning of uh, focusing very much on everybody in basically they're all wearing, they all have mustaches, they all have glasses, they're all wearing similar coats. And it just looks a little weird, but there's no comment. But he's very careful to kind of introduce each character as they come onto the subway and they take their positions for the eventual uh, hostage and, and and taking of the subway train. And I love how that then circles to the end when they're making their their getaway. their getaway completely hinges on the fact that uh, Martin Bassam's character, Mr. Green, used to work for the MTA, and he knows how to run a train, stop a train. And he also knows how to play with the dead man's switch to ensure that they can actually get off and let the subway keep running so that everyone's chasing the subway to the end of the line where – but they're making their escape like a couple stops earlier. Um, when that scene happens and they escape, everyone takes off their mustaches. Everyone takes off their glasses and puts on new coats. And I love that there's that focus of these guys all weirdly look the same, but then you find out, no, they don't actually look the same. They're taking off everything. There are just like these moments that Sargent ties together from the beginning and from the end that are done really, really well. And just add to the fun of the movie. This is a fun movie. Um, despite the fact that it is dirty and grimy and everyone is kind of a jackass, uh, there it is, it is amazing how much that is true, but how enjoyable and fun of a ride the, the film is as well
0: absolutely and I think that's a great point for us to move on to our next movie which I'm sure will be just as fun and as lighthearted and have absolutely nothing shocking or terrible happening within the first 20 minutes uh, <laughs> let's talk about our next movie which is Rolling Thunder San Antone, it's really good to see you it's been a while but you've been on my mind in your rolling hills and winding rivers so clear that i
1: could almost make them mine our next film is 1977's rolling thunder um a kind of war film kind of revenge film kind of thriller film uh directed by john flynn um Screenplay, though, by Paul Schrader, uh, who wrote the original story and then written the original screenplay, uh, which was then rewritten, I think, much to his dissatisfaction by Haywood Gould. Uh, This film stars William Devane and uh, an incredible, we will talk about, Tommy Lee Jones uh, in the story of a bunch of POWs who have been returned uh, after a number of years being held in a POW camp. They are returned to America, uh, to the great state of Texas, specifically San Antonio, as the incredible cheesy music tells you in the opening and ending credits. Um, And it is kind of about a lot of things. It is about trying to readjust to normal life, Uh, Not only for William Devane's character, who is uh, Charles Major Charles Rain, Um, he's he's the real star, but it's a little bit about his readjustment uh, with his wife and son, who doesn't even remember him. Um, That's what the film is about for a while. Uh, He comes home, he is treated like a war hero, he is given a beautiful red Cadillac convertible, and he is very important to the plot. He is given from Woolworths. Uh, a silver dollar for every day he had been away, which equals $2,550, because that's how long he was in captivity. That sets off um, a series of events in which a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells break into his home in order to get that money. Um, They wind up... Not only killing his wife and his son, but they also stick his hand into a garbage disposal and completely obliterate his hand. from there, the movie takes on a very, very different direction as uh, Major Charles Rain goes on a rampaging revenge run across the state of Texas into Mexico and back again. So... Uh, I can tell you about the verisimilitude and the authenticity of New York City in the '70s, John. I cannot tell you at all <laughs> about what life may have been like for uh, Vietnam vets and uh, POWs who returned home in the late '70s to San Antonio, Texas. Um, but what I can tell you is this movie also a huge influence on uh, Tarantino. He writes about it quite a bit in his film in his book *Cinema Speculation*. Um, when I think of like gritty '70s cinema, like this was the first film. That came to my mind. Um, it is a sharp, sharply directed, sharply plotted film. Uh, John Flynn does a great job, but this is not a film where you're looking at like, oh, I like how he frames the shot. I I I like the use of the kind of the wide scope for the shootout in the abandoned building with the staircases that that uh, one of the, the characters in, engages in. This is a movie that just feels hot, dirty, and sweaty uh, and really does not speak kindly to any of its characters. Um, and I, that's like, I, I think of that when I think of 70 cinema. So I guess just kind of starting out, (laughs) uh, you had said to me, Hey, um, I think my wife and I are going to watch this on Friday night. I was like, you may want to just temper that and check out the (laughs) trailer before you decide if you're going to watch this with your wife or not. So a, was that a good decision? And, uh, B just kind of what were your thoughts about the film overall?
0: At almost every point leading up to my watching this movie, and it, up to end, like d- while watching this movie, my trying to get a grasp on like what I thought the thread of this movie was kept changing, um, which uh, you could either like call <laughs> that's either a bug or a feature depending on your perspective, I guess. Um, I did read the summary uh, to, to my wife. And she was like, yeah, I don't need to see that. You can, you can, you can watch that on your own. Um, and so I did this morning. Uh, I think that the, like to start off the, to start off the movie, like you, okay, first of all, that intro song that you mentioned, uh, gave me some real fast company vibes. Like if we wanted to talk about, you know, 70s cinema, uh, like I feel like fast, sort of like it starts off in sort of a similar, uh, good old vibe uh with that with that theme song and then the first handful of like the the introduction to the movie where he gets this big huge processional and he he goes his his welcome home where the the whole town is there there's marching bands there's signs um and tommy lee jones does sort of express some discomfort at like i don't necessarily want to be there with people but william devane says yeah you'll be fine um he's come home and his wife uh like, there's some references to them perhaps, uh, you know, needing to readjust to l- life back home. And Tommy Lee Jones, you get a sense of that with him, but then he disappears for a chunk of the movie. And William Devane then comes home to his family to find out that, yeah, his son doesn't recognize him and his wife is engaged to someone else. Given what the hell this person has been through, you could assume that a different version of this movie might have been about, like, he can't adjust to life and sort of destroys his family in the process. But. He actually is like, well, he is not happy about it, but he sort of says, well, I just want to stay close to my son. So like, okay, well, then maybe this is going to be like more of a, like a laid back drama about, you know, someone's of like a heartfelt, sincere, we're going to this person's going to struggle, but eventually going to find a way to live with himself and his family. But that's definitely not where this movie is. That's uh, not where
1: this movie goes at all. Yeah, I would but, not have recommended that for a movie. Don't no, 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 no. Much. Just real quick uh, as, cause you just something something that struck me. So as you continue kind of thinking through your thoughts, I would maybe argue that, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't adjust it. It's, it's because he can't adjust that. What winds up happening happens to him for the rest of the film
0: you're probably right about that uh and then after 20 minutes the 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 inciting event happens which is of course the uh the whoever the group of people come into his house uh uh mangle his hand to the point where he loses it and kill his wife and son uh and take his uh money and what's so here's like your, here's your John Wick moment, uh, to use something, to use a more recent reference where you assume that now he's just going to go on an unstoppable killing spree. And that's kind of what I expected for the rest of the movie to be. I mean, sure, it might not be as quite as modern in terms of its pacing or that kind of stuff. But the first, the, the immediate aftermath of that is just he's still trying to like hold things down even though he's and and like eventually you do get there but i'm just surprised at like how long it actually takes for him to get to the point where he can't contain his rage anymore does that make sense
1: it does um one of the things that i find interesting is i think i i think containing his rage is like a weird way to maybe frame it i think one of the when we talk talk about him being stoic and his, his coping mechanism, he, he, one of the things I love about the film is that Flynn constantly flashes back in black and white to his, his moments of captivity and how those things continue to haunt him throughout this entire experience. There's a scene later on. I mean, that is essentially the film in a nutshell. Guy comes back, still haunted by the war, can't really adjust because he can't really adjust when he's accosted by these men who starts to torture him, he immediately just goes back into his haunted shell. And the way that he deals with it is to essentially be dead to the world and not talk besides to give his, the only thing he says the entire time is he just gives his name and his serial number Um, is left for dead with a, he shot and has his hand ripped off apparently through the disposal. Wife and son are dead. He recuperates. And then immediately upon being done recuperating um, starts to exact his is revenge by getting ready and then traveling to find these people. It's been, I think they say it's been like six or nine weeks or something like that since the inciting incident. So he has to kind of start over and figure out how to get to these, these people. As we get to the end of that, um, he, of, of course, there is a woman in the film, um, the uh, fantastic Linda Hay- Hayes Haynes, sorry, Linda Haynes, has not really did a lot of um, movies after this. She kind of disappeared and became a secretary Um, later on, but is surprisingly good in this. He kind of plays like a groupie who falls for him, and she goes with him to Mexico and realizes that she's in over the head. Um, There's a scene where they finally make love, and then he's laying in bed, and he finally just says to her, I'm dead. I don't feel anything. Uh, That's who I am. I'm just this person. I'm just going to do this thing because this is the thing that I have to do. And I think that I that's the thing that really struck me about this film. It, it's not a guy who's boiling over with anger. It's a guy who and this seems to be very typical Schrader is so living in his head and his experiences and his past um, that that just colors everything that he does. And he he takes Tommy Lee Jones eventually along for that ride as well to and incredibly, considering how largely bloodless the rest of the film is. The end is incredibly bloody and is incredibly violent and, uh, and graphic, but that key scene that sticks with me throughout the film is him laying in bed, um, with his one arm kind of strategically placed under the sheet the whole time. I'm like, that's a great move. Just put the hand under the sheet so that you don't have to worry about an effect there. Um, just talking in that very calm William Devane voice, um, that he is in fact dead. He, he never came back to life after his captivity.
0: Well, yeah. Cause that's, yeah. He, he explains that they, they talk about being alive in terms of their life before captivity and that this is all just, you know, being alive was a past issue and he's not that anymore. I, yeah. I, I did quite appreciate that characterization. I think you're, i think you're right the 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 bloody ending at the end is probably where i think the film sort of like really starts to 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 cook and is and it sort of becomes the movie that i kind of thought we were going to get for most of it
1: it's a it's a simmer until it explodes
0: yeah absolutely yeah i i think that if there's a thing i would have other than yeah the, the the other than sort of, I guess, weird expectations on my own part uh, going into this movie, the only other thing I would say is that I kind of wish there was more Tommy Lee Jones
1: in this movie. That's a problem. So the one thing that I'll say, too, is um, I like William William Devane in this. This was, I think, one of his first leading roles. He'd done some character work, obviously, before then. But this feels like, like a low-budget movie where they're trying to groom this guy to be something else. And of course, William Devane went on to do a lot of things, but... When you put William Devane on screen next to Tommy Lee Jones, especially a, 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 a young, ridiculously kind of ripped and in shape Tommy Lee Jones. Um, he,
0: he does the end of that movie with his shirt open.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he and looks you like notice. It, it must have been really hard for Devane to kind of have to figure out how to play opposite so much magnetic power coming from tommy lee jones i i I did think about like what if the situation were reversed and what if tommy lee jones was playing the rain character but i think and it's incredible to say this when you think about tommy lee jones's career and how he has done so well playing like a stone-faced unemotional person um i don't know that at least back in 77 he would have been right in that role because he does play like the shell-shocked kind of quiet i am definitely not adjusting to this life and probably one of my favorite scenes of the film is when he goes to pick up tommy lee jones and they're about to sit down at dinner Tommy jones walks out in his uniform goes going off for a beer see you later and then just leaves his family to go with his commanding officer to go kill all these mexicans kill all these mexicans that's there are some tonal problems with this film, and I get the time that it was taken, and and, and I get where they're going and what's happening. But it is kind of disconcerting when William Devane says, look, I'm going to take the old white guy and the other guy. There'll be a bunch of Mexicans. You take care of them. Johnny Jones. all right. Going to kill some Mexicans. And he I, does. I, they kill a lot of people.
0: <laughs> I think but I, you have done in this conversation a good job of convincing me more of the shell shocked nature of William Devane's character. So I appreciate that in my initial in when I watched it this morning. Mm-hmm. um in sort of watching the demeanor of both characters as they're coming back, like, it seemed obvious to, like, obviously there's the Tommy Lee Jones of it all, but he, but his character also is obviously the character who is just not even able to try and hide that yeah. he's not having, uh, a good time. And so I, uh, um, I, and, and so at first, like, part of me wanting more of him in this movie is like, he's the guy who seems more obviously fucked up and there's more, just sort of there potentially would be more to to mine and and maybe if you i don't know if that's a question of writing it differently or just having someone who's not tommy lee jones just sort of like taking you uh sort of stealing your eyes uh for a bit uh whenever he's on screen but yeah like when he he shows up for a while he he, and when he like after the attack he shows up to help Mm -hmm. um did you think it was weird at all that they went to their final bloody showdown in their military uh uniforms or was that part of the cover of like going to the whorehouse to you know pick up some uh to pick up some ladies and like that would that, that would part to me was weird i was like wouldn't someone get weird about like doing your big bloody uh showdown wearing your full military uniform
1: So I think, um, no, I, I think the dressing in the military uniform is very intentional, not because this is what I should wear. Like, like, not for that reason, but more like that is the life that these guys know. They, they only, they are not comfortable as civilians. They are not comfortable in civilian life. They, they, they can only kind of live in this in, in this past that has ultimately consumed them. So I I I think there's a there's a piece there. It's much more so with William Devane's character, the fact that he leaves Linda Haynes behind and gives her all of his money. But I get the sense that these two expect to die doing this. So if you're going to die, you're going to die in the line of duty, and when you're in the line of duty you wear your your battle dress and that's what they're doing. I I there's a there's a sense to me that when Tom Lee Jones walks out that door and says, we're just going back to a beer, we're going to get a beer, we'll be back in a bit, he doesn't think he's coming back. Hmm. They're going to do this last thing, and then that's going to be it. Which is why, if I have a thing that confounds me about the ending, other than the craziness of they replay San Antone at the end, even though they are not in San Antone. Um, It's that they live at the end. And the last shot is them. They're both been wounded, uh, but they're both like limp away and kind of walk into the sunset. It's a weird ending. And that's one of the things where I wonder um, if that was, I haven't read enough about it, but if that was Schrader's original intent that they both walk away. It doesn't feel like it would be.
0: So it becomes interesting at that point to then compare it against taking a 1 one, two, three, where <clears throat> the ending itself is, is, is a bit of a surprise because you expect it to end earlier. But when it does happen, it's a moment of like, there it is. Everything comes together. It's a one big punch, a uh, like triumphant moment comes together in one big climax. And then, and then you're out, right? Like you hit the, uh, you hit the big moment and then you're done and it and it feels great and it's wonderful and with this movie the the ending of well like it's it de- it's definitely not a movie that's supposed to be triumphant at any point uh but they do the thing that they set, they set out to do and they're hurt but they've survived and then as they're walking away the credits roll out it doesn't nearly have that sort of like it, it it is it is kind of sudden but it doesn't feel like it's sudden because it's going out with a bang it feels sudden because it's like i don't know how to continue this story i guess we'll just end it here
1: yeah which is why to me you end it there there's no like okay he did what they have to do but now they have to since they're alive they're gonna have to not only deal with the consequences, but they're still going to have to deal with the baggage that they took home with them when they got back from Vietnam. So it's a weird ending. It's not an entirely successful ending for me, but I personally, for me, I love kind of how it switches that tone midway. And I love that it's methodical and what it's trying to do. I, I I enjoy a lot of the colder moments with Devane um, just, just being so single-minded and just not caring about anything other than just, well, this is the mission. This is what I have to do. And I'm going to do it in this kind of dead inside manner. Um,
0: I, I even, uh, and, and to your point, like the, the, um, I, I thought, I thought it was kind of neat that, or I, I I thought it was kind of fun that like in the midst of doing all this, like planning and, uh, single-minded focus stuff like before they go out for their uh before they go out for their big finale they have dinner with tommy lee jones's family like and and sure they ditch out on the dinner to go do it but like there's a whole scene where they're just like yeah just doing a family dinner and i'm it's i i thought that again because the the movie doesn't rush things in terms of its pacing i thought that was an interesting thing of being like okay well we're um we're definitely like, I know what's going to happen, but we're not going to do that yet. Cause we're going to have, we're going to have a, we're going to have a dinner with folk and talk politics of apparently American manufacturing, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, a, t- to me, that point was just, Hey, let's take a minute to see how just inane Tommy Lee Jones's life is like, they're all having this conversation about American versus Japanese manufacturing and this and that. And just Tommy Lee Jones looks so out of place. I actually like that they spend just just the barest amount of time to just show this is what's happening this is what his normal life is and he just he's sitting there and he's so big he's like he, he's in this little tiny chair and he's just kind of hunched over just like just trying to survive like this is just as hard for him to survive as anything that he had to survive when he was overseas in fact when Devane just decides he's tired of it and says hey uh, can I talk to you for a few minutes the first thing, the first thing that uh, Tommy Lee Jones says is, "I'm sorry." You know, I, I think for that you have to see this civilian life that obviously is not cut out for either of us. Uh, there's a lot here, and I think the parts that really shine through, and I I have no real barometer for this, just knowing his other films, the 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 Schrader parts. I think shined for me, and then there are interesting pieces where it's just like, like the whole thing with the cowboy sheriff fiance. It seems like it was added in after the fact. Like, hey, we need an action scene here, so let's have the the police guy go after and have a big gunfight in the middle of this movie because it's been going on for too long and we haven't had like a pop yet. Right. Like those pieces, as nicely as they're filmed, because there's a great kind of chase scene through a cattle maze looks great it has nothing to do with the movie and I don't really get why it's there. And it, it, it takes a, it, it takes away from, I think some of the brooding horror that is coming to a, coming to a boil by the film's end. Um, but again, like without, without having to qualify my love for the movie, cause I really like the movie. I, 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 I prefer taking a Pelham one, two, three, but when I think of seventies, This, for some reason, this is the movie that I think of, like just the weirdness of they cut his hand off. He's going to put a claw and he's going to sharpen and he's going out for revenge. And when you hear that, you have this thing in your mind. But then when you watch it, to your point, it's something entirely different than an expectation that you may have had from a cut trailer or from a very simple summary. Uh, And I think to me that speaks to some of the complexities and stuff that even in low budget kind of exploitation films, we would try to get through that I don't think you get through that much anymore. Certainly certainly don't at all in studio films. Um and unfortunately we're not making enough independent films to really have that vibrancy again. But uh I don't know. Uh this movie does stuff to me. <laughs> John so I'm just leaving it at that.
0: There's definitely like there's definitely parts here and there that I think are that there's there's interesting parts in there for me. I think that I probably it probably doesn't stay with me, I think, as much as it does for for you. I know that there are definitely parts in sort of the middle section where I found myself struggling to like maintain my interest, I guess. But there's, I mean, the 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 part the the moments of explosions, the Schrader parts, like those are absolutely like those are really good. Um, I. <laughs> this is going to sound especially juvenile, but when he uses his hook to basically uh, almost castrate a guy, castrate a guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even so much that when he does that, it's the sound that the guy makes when he does it. And like he, Oh, it's a horrible he, sound. It's, 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 <laughs> I laughed so hard at the sound effects that they used, And then the, the, the tone of voice of him being like, just let him go, let him go, let him go. Or however that it plays out that part, i don't know if i was supposed to laugh at it but i thought it was really it just in a movie you're right that is i think i like that you brought up the ex the the exploitation thing because this feels like i think what i was expecting was a much more exploitation type movie and it wasn't that
1: distributed through aip so i mean you should expect an exploitation film i think like the schrader things raise it up you know to a level beyond that here
0: yeah and now it's time for our film recommendation segment. Chris, what do you got for us today?
1: So I've got uh, a couple things. Uh, this is a little bit of uh, what I did while I was away on vacation. That vacation was literally just taking a month off so I could focus on work and family. Uh, but I watched a lot of films. For some crazy reason, I got into... Um, Giallo, uh, uh, the Italian kind of horror thriller genre that was extremely prevalent in the seventies, uh, made famous by people like Dario Argento, um, Mario Bava, um, people like, like, like that. And for some reason I, I had known all the classics, but I didn't know a lot of the other kind of smaller, um, or side films. So I spent a lot of time in the giallo genre Uh, and we'll probably do them at some point because there's some really interesting things there but the one that i want to focus on is um the a collection of films by an italian director called sergio martino um who uh maybe not as well known certainly not as well known as dario argento but if you think about um Some of those films and their wonderful titles, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, uh, Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies on Gray Velvet, uh, his his, his very famous um, animal trilogy of Giallo films. Uh, It's so great just to hear incredible titles like that. So um, I'll just point out a couple. I'm not going to go into plots. Giallo's largely have the same plot. It is, uh, typically, um, someone is murdering a bunch of people, typically young, beautiful women. Uh, there are earmarks of like POV view of the killer, black gloves. It's very violent, but it's also very vibrantly colored. Um, there are a lot of repeating actors and actresses throughout the films. Sergio Mart- Martino, it, it, he, he should be discussed in the same breath as like a or, um, Uh, or an Argento. So just a couple of films, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, uh, The Case of the Scorpion's Tale, uh, one of my favorite uh, titles, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. That's, I mean, that's a title. Um, All the Colors of the Dark. Torso, which is, um, it's a giallo, but it's also kind of the progenitor for a lot of the modern slasher films that would rise up in the late 70s. The Suspicious Death of a Miner. Um, all of those films, um, just fantastic, uh, really well shot, really well directed. Uh, you typically don't know who did it until the end, but that's just because of how crazy the screenplays are. They don't give you an opportunity to figure out who it is. Um, but that's where I really spent kind of from a film perspective. I think I watched like 15 or 16 films over the course of the last month, um, So can't recommend the work of Sergio Martino uh, uh, enough. If you are a fan of Giallo and you've never checked out any of his stuff, all of those films that I just mentioned, I highly recommend. Um, And on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, uh, I would be remiss if I did not talk about the overwhelming joy and purity I feel now that the second season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds is upon us. Um, I am not the Star Trek person you are, John. I know you are a massive Star Trek nerd. I am not. Um, I like Star Trek, um, but it's not anything that I've ever been like identified with. Um, I've heard enough about the show that it was kind of trying to capture the spirit of the original series. Uh, where it is kind of more anthology driven and every episode is somewhat standalone, even though there may be like a, a season long through line that's not as important. Um, it's colorful. It goes back to the original five year mission. Like, let's seek out new worlds. Let's explore life. Let's boldly go where no man has gone before. And man, this, this show, this show just delivers. It delivers every single time. Uh, I could talk for days about my love, not only of Anson Mount as uh, Captain Pike, but just specifically of Captain Pike's hair, which might be some of the most beautiful hair I've ever seen Correct. on television. Um, I love how diverse his crew is. He is, with the exception of Spock, he is almost entirely surrounded by women. Um, and every single crew member is just so filled with personality and and story and character. Um, I could go on endlessly about the fact that, uh, Carol Kane has joined the cast in season two and Carol Kane is just, just unbelievable. Every second she's on screen, I can't take my eyes off of her. I can't take my ears off of her voice, which is only gotten even crazier as she has gotten older. Um, so, I mean, there's nothing else for me to say. Just, I love it so much. And over the last couple of days, Uh, It feels very strongly like, I'll say the world, but really America uh, has somewhat lost its marbles a little bit. Um, As we jump into the independence holiday here in America, I feel like we are slowly starting to celebrate our independence from any sense of compassion or rational thought. So it's been a little weird here. And, uh, I was particularly kind of emotional about it the other day. And then I remembered, I have a new episode of strange new worlds to watch and every episode is so full of like goodness and, and strives for ideals that if you think about Starfleet as a whole and what Starfleet throughout all of Star Trek was always supposed to represent, it was always supposed to, even in the face of horrible, uh, um, atrocities like we were just talking about, the eugenics Wars of the 90s, right and things like that. Uh, Starfleet has always supposed to have been there to be the standard bearer for the ideals of of humanity, whether that humanity is actually Earthbound humans or not. Uh, so to see that so boldly embraced by this new Star Trek show, Uh, is a wonderful tonic for some of the insanity that I've been seeing and reading about. uh, And I can't recommend it enough. I hate the fact that it's on Paramount Plus and I had to subscribe to yet another service for a month or two, just so that I can see this incredible show. But uh, it it was worth it.
0: (laughs) I'll, I'll definitely back you up on the, uh, on, on the strange new worlds. It is, uh, I, I, I think I'm more pro discovery than most people. It seems like, especially in light of strange new worlds coming out that it's just become sort of in fashion to shit on discovery. Um, but like, which I've I also- never
1: watched. So I can't comment on it because I'm not the, I'm not the star Trek d- d- devotee that you are.
0: <laughs> right. Without turning this into a conversation on star Trek discovery, I will say that season two of star Trek discovery effectively is kind of a season long soft launch for strange new worlds because the, the main characters from strange new worlds, uh, show up in season two of discovery for most of the season. So like if you, if you, if your appetite for more Anson mounts, gorgeous hair, uh, cannot be sated by the, the scheduling of the show. Uh, you, if you wanted more, uh, I would recommend season two of discovery. The Am I wrong that this sir?
1: I mean, I mean, I'm not wrong, right?
0: <laughs> no, no. You're absolutely correct. Like, that's you're not off base. The but it but I can't even deny that like Strange New Worlds has just com- it, it's the best Star Trek of this millennium. Like, I would say I, I'd say that maybe the first uh JJ Abrams movie uh comes close. Um that would be the only real competition I think it has. But uh, between enterprise discovery, the last of the last handful of, uh, uh, next generation movies. Um, and certainly all of the JJ Abrams sequels, um, strange new worlds has, uh, just planted a flag definitively on like, (laughs) no, 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 this is how you make good star Trek. And, uh, (laughs) And yes, the 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 new season uh, so far has been just three really good episodes. There was a meme I saw the other day that was. Uh Star Trek fans when they get a CGI battle uh, of spaceships and it's Data making sort of a neutral face, and then Star Trek fans when they get a courtroom episode and <laughs> Data's like yes, and I feel like we've we've already like we've done our time travel episode this season, we've done a courtroom episode this season, like like even if they're playing sort of like we stole the Enterprise
1: in the we, premier, yeah the, right?
0: yeah the, the start they did Star Trek three in the first episode like <laughs> like even if they're sort of hitting types of plot points that you know in star trek but like they know but they're doing it at such a high level of proficiency uh and it's and it's a hell of a lot of fun too um that like i don't know who could i don't know anyone who would like star trek who would dislike strange new worlds like straight up it's uh i heartily recommend uh heartily endorse your recommendation for that (laughs) thank you sir uh for myself uh (laughs) Yeah, I don't necessarily know how it fits to our initial conception of this as a 70s tough guys thing. But when we broaden the theme out to uh, 70s uh, movies more generally, uh, one of my favorites, uh, which I'm hoping at some point we might be able to do a uh, cover more fully is uh, William Freakin's Sorcerer, a movie that uh, I remember. I remember specifically hearing the name sorcerer being told it's secretly really great. And it's not a movie that like is necessarily on the lips of a lot of people, but like, it's secretly great. You should watch it. Do not misunderstand. This is not a movie about fantasy. This is not a movie about wizards or magic uh, or anything. Uh, So don't let the movie give you, different expectations about what this is. This is a movie about dudes who have to transport a bunch of dynamite that's ready to explode, um, across incredibly, incredibly dangerous physical terrain. Um, and it is one of the more tense movies, uh, I've seen in my life and it whips ass and it was released in the seventies. So it fits the theme of 70 cinema and that's why I recommend it.
1: Uh, I I will my, I might get my Criterion uh, membership rescinded here. Uh, of course, uh, Saucer based on um, is it Cluzo uh, who did Wages of Fear? Yeah, I think um, so. Here's where I get it rescinded. I think Saucer is a better film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'll throw the stake in the ground right now. Uh, we could do it next month or another month, but we do a Roy Scheider episode. Who is one of my favorite underrated actors? And we do all that jazz and we do Saucer. And we just get it out of our system. <laughs> oh,
0: I mean, I, I remember watching all that jazz in the last couple of years and just sort of having my mind completely destroyed by it. So, yeah,
1: I think this may be an instance, too, where maybe we do two films and both of those films by the end of the episode enter our enter our vaulted. We haven't had a film there in a while. Maybe Yee was the last film. Uh, but maybe we try this. Maybe we try <laughs> under the auspices of a too, Roy Scheider episode to push two films from one episode into the vault.
0: <laughs> well, and there's enough there, and there's and William Freakin has enough like stuff in the rest of his thing. We could do a separate William Friedkin episode because I know that there. Oh, totally.
1: There's an, there's I, more, and there's one I haven't seen that I'm dying to see. So I mean, we could do Freakin and do two completely.
0: Well, I know that Other I know Dylan's been it. talking to us about wanting to do a uh, Friedkin. So, but so, uh, so I'd say that if we do Roy Scheider with Sorcerer, then we would just, as long as we still have enough
1: for Friedkin as a, as a separate thing, I think we could probably Oh, I it. do. I do. Cause the film that I would pick wouldn't be, wouldn't be that. It would be something. Gotcha. Yeah. We can think through that.
0: I love to plan our podcast while recording the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chris, I hope you have enjoyed, uh, your time away and, uh, focusing on, uh, the everyday things of life that need to be tended to. Uh, but it was also great to have you back.
1: Uh, I definitely enjoyed it, but I'm also definitely happy to be back. Absolutely.
0: We, uh, that'll probably wrap it up for us today. Uh, And I don't know what we have going on on the website these days, but cinemaduel.com is the place to find us. And as we speak, Twitter uh, currently has been not working today. So who even fucking knows uh, if uh, by the time this is released that Twitter will still exist. So I think that might be just a thing we say every episode, but cinemaduel.com, follow us there.
1: Yeah, (laughs) or if you are reading about us on twitter make sure it's one of the first 600 tweets unless you're verified and then it's two thousand. but then if you're not verified or not logged in then it's only 300 i don't know what's going on i barely use twitter anymore that's why my handle there is almost gone i i
0: like if i had i was like you know i'm probably gonna hang on longer um i i I don't just it felt like i didn't feel enough motivation to leave but what happened today might be the closest i've gotten to just saying fuck it (laughs) <laughs> i i think i'm gonna ask some people to see if they have some blue sky invites uh to send my way and then and then i'm if waiting I can, for
1: mine still, yeah. still waiting for mine uh, and if uh, i, I if I get great... one then i
0: think what
1: uh, no go ahead
0: i was gonna say the second i can get a blue sky invite, i think i'm gonna do it
1: sounds good and i think there may be no better way to end, to end this episode than just uh fuck it we'll see you guys next month
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> Uh, open the door slightly stick your head through it just a little bit like Walter Matthau and then Fates Black <laughs>